Friends, welcome to the Living Truth Podcast. This is Kristen Carey hosting today, and I am so excited to be with Connie and Bob Spiegel. You guys, thank you so much for coming and joining me as guests on the Living Truth Podcast. Thanks for having us. We're, we're so honored to be here. Yes, thank you. So Connie and Bob are a married couple. They have, I'm going to let them tell us how long they've been married. How long have you guys been married? Actually, 44 years. It'll be 45 in December 31st. That's amazing. Okay, but things have not always been easy for Connie and Bob, and they're going to share some of our story, some of their story. They're going to share their story with us. Let me tell you guys that Bob and Connie work with Daring Ventures, which is a phenomenal counseling and coaching practice out of Houston, Texas. They work with betrayed partners. They work with people with unwanted sexual behavior. So Bob and Connie are in this work, in this field professionally because of the pain and devastation they went through in their own personal story. And uh, unfortunately, what happens many times for those of us who are following Jesus is we expect that we're going to get what we need when we go to our churches in terms of help and hope. But in this field that is so early in the study, scientific, neurological, um, psychosocial, psychosocial, emotional, biological, all the things, right? Because sex addiction and betrayal trauma hit us on every level. This is not just a sexual thing. And it's not just the church that is lagging behind with the knowledge of how to handle this well, but, but counseling offices, coaching practices, unless you have specialized training. And so Bob and Connie have been through it, both with their personal story, but also with the help that they were seeking. And so they're here to share their story, to share some hope, but also to shine the light on these dark areas so that people listening to this episode can get some hope and healing for finding the right kind of help and support in the face of these devastating struggles of, of sex addiction and betrayal trauma. So where do you guys want to start with your story? Like what is the most relevant place you want to start? Let, let me say this, if, if you're okay. You know, we love pastors. In fact, you know, Jake, Jake Porter, Dr. Porter was a pastor. Yeah. We have such a heart. We were dear, dear friends with our pastor of mm-hmm. 30 years who unfortunately died of cancer. We love elders and, and pastoral counselors. We love them. They have done some of the most greatest harm to our relationship. It, it, it's unbelievable to include therapists. Um, I, I imagine if there had been coaches back then, they would have too. <laughs> so, and I, if I'd been a coach, I probably would have caused a lot of harm too, not understanding not only what sex addiction really was about, but what betrayal trauma was. So I say that everything I say is from a place of love. I have such a heart for pastors. They did not go to seminary to be sex addiction specialists. Unfortunately, they tend to be the first place a betrayed woman goes to. Mm-hmm. I got off with two calls today and I asked permission from both of them. One husband was told that it's time for him to get back in the driver's seat and quit allowing her to dictate that she needed a disclosure and a polygraph, that a polygraph is demonic. I had another one that said, I would, a pastor said, I would rather you divorce your wife than allow her to make you take a polygraph. That was today, 2022. 
Okay. So I say this in love that they don't know what they're doing and God love them. I know small churches can't keep someone on staff like us, but they've got to have a referral list and stop mm-hmm. the nonsense because what they're doing is exactly what happened to us. They're per- perpetuating this addiction and the, uh, the rupture to the relationship. Okay. So I want to say that. Yeah. Yeah. That is an interesting thought that when a person is not trauma informed and not sex addiction informed, yeah, they're going to, they're going to facilitate more damage to the relationship and yeah. to the individuals really. It ended our marriage. That abuse. That's why we're very passionate about this because it we could have easily gone a different way. God in his mercy has used that pain, but 44 years of marriage, we basically at year 10 of our marriage, he confessed adultery. I just I just asked him, I just said, Hey, have you ever broken covenant? <laughs> we were brand new believers. And he said, I have. Literally, like just boop, boop. He's kind of like. He's a little bit like that. He's a West Point engineer, you know, and he'll just don't ask him. A little, if you little bit of a Boy Scout. <laughs> yeah. And don't ask him if you have a fag because he'll tell you you do. And so all that to say, after 20 years of marriage, he confessed more. Now, at this point, I'm wrecked. I haven't told sisters, family, friends. I don't know what to do. Who do you go to? So what do we do? Right. We went to marriage retreats. We read marriage books. We had more sex. I wore higher heels. Um, I have a knee replacement from some of those stiletto heels I used to wear all the time. And Connie, why were you wearing higher heels? Because the pastors and the pastoral counselors and the counselors said more sex, lingerie, heels, um, kinder, sweeter, quiet, without a general stroke his ego a little bit more. Stroke his ego without without a without a word, but by your gentle, quiet spirit, win him over to the Lord, which has nothing to do with this subject. That's about salvation right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So basically we ended up at the end of that 23 year mark, we went to big name people, spent thousands of dollars, still didn't know what sex addiction was. And, and let me say this too. <clears throat> I truly believe that pastors, elders, pastoral counselors, etc., they're goodwill people. Yes. You know, they just unfortunately don't understand the dynamics or I should say most don't understand the dynamics of what sex addiction is all about. Heck, back in in, in the late 80s, 90s, nobody understood sex addiction. It's still not recognized as a real disease, if you will, like drugs and alcohol. You know, we talk about drugs and alcohol. Okay, we all understand that. And, you know, we're going to take care of that. and We're going to fix this guy. But sex addiction is a whole different a whole different thing. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to take anything into my mouth or breathe it. It's all here all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So after going to some of those big name people that we spent thousands of dollars, our marriage was disintegrating because, and you can tell them the main, the main thing they were teaching back then in 1997, 1998 was external locus of control. We're going to behaviorally get him out of this addiction. So, you know, we're walking to a restaurant to go on a date and he's popping that rubber band so hard he's getting blisters and I want to kill him. I want to like jump out of the car, out of the restaurant because it it was so dishonoring to me. Sure, walking down the sidewalk and, you know, 
a trigger walks by and and so I and so what is she thinking which well you know what she's thinking you know oh okay he's obsessing you know he's, he's lusting after this woman etc cetera, etc cetera. and it just Do you feel threatened sure you feel and unsafe it, and okay. so then yeah so then your trauma gets set off yeah exactly exactly and, and yet he thinks he's doing the right thing well, I'm doing what they suggested I do. And did it behavioral work? Modi- behavioral <laughs> modifications, you know. Yeah. Did that work for you, Bob? No, of course not. Yeah. Of course not. Well, no. some of our listeners may have been trying behavior modification, external, bounce mm-hmm. the eyes, stop, just stop that, you know, yes. kind of stuff. Yes. And so yes. there will be people listening to this that really do think that that, you know, external stuff, even accountability, traditional accountability, that kind of thing is going to work, but it, it doesn't, does it? it? Did your addiction continue to progress? Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah, it progressed. So, so he tried everything. People in the church began to question his salvation. Yeah. Uh, you know, if he's doing all this, he must not be saved. Well, I mean, my answer to that is, is just that, I mean, I knew that I was. Did I accept the fact that God loved me unconditionally? Well, no, because I couldn't forgive myself. So, you know, how could he forgive me, right? Right. But the truth of that is, is that when I walked up to the door of salvation at age 30, and I knocked on the door, and Jesus said, okay, come on in. I did. I stepped over the threshold and walked in. And that was my point of righteousness, right? My point of salvation. Unfortunately, Jesus didn't say, okay, Bob, before you walk into the, into the door or through the door, go ahead and drop those two bags of baggage, hurts, and et cetera, et cetera, that you're carrying with you. He didn't say that. So I carried those through the doorway. And of course, that started the process of sanctification. Yeah. So yes, I I, I definitely knew in, in my own heart that I loved the Lord and, and that I had salvation. Yeah. So that wasn't a question for me. Yeah, I start I questioned it because they kept needling me so terribly and they thought it was so stupid to say a, a saved man could do the horrific sexual things he was doing. And, and they thought I was very naive about that and didn't understand salvation. They even sat down and explained salvation to me and what it meant. I, you know, I'd done, you know, six years of BSF and Beth Moore and I'd done it all. And anyway, um, I remember the day he told me he was hanging out with some new Christian friends that were trying to get him saved, that they took him through deliverance. And he was hopeful that that would be the answer. And they wanted me to go through deliverance for my addiction to my husband. And I did need to go through deliverance of them. I needed to get rid of them, but I didn't. That's just a little joke on the side. Yeah. So so in 2000. Um, in 2000, I finally, I, 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 and we've gone through a lot. You know, we've been through several separations. Uh, many. Many. <clears throat> and, and I did. I, I tried everything uh, to... Uh, uh, to get healed of this addiction. And I finally called Connie and I said, honey, I said, look, um, you have got to divorce me. I can't stop because I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing mm-hmm. and how not to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. That was a dark, dark day for us. 
I called my pastor and I told him, I said, Bob, it's not going to go to that marriage retreat we're signed up for. And I had a big, huge bag of high heels to wear at it. And um, they, he said, I'll be right over with an elder. And they just sat me down and said, you're so naive. He doesn't love you. He's probably never loved you. And you need to divorce him. And we are going to hold you accountable to that. And I, you know, it was, it was, I was so alone, you know, my family didn't even know much. I, they actually did. Bob had gone to live with my family, my mom and dad uh, for three or four months. So they knew we were falling apart and he confessed what he'd done to them. So they did know, but I was pretty much alone in that divorce. I had to navigate it myself, figure it out. Um, and how old and, were your children? So I had, I had a daughter going into her no, she was in her senior year. I had a son high school. At, yeah, high school. I had a son at AM and I had a, a junior high little football player. He was a Joshua East Darwin. And so so we divorced with the hope of reconciliation. I either hoped we'd reconcile or I'd hoped he'd fall in love with a very unattractive woman that was saved and would be sweet to my children. And I would get married to a a gospel singer or something as I sang back then. But I remember telling my children, I was so worried about who he might marry, you know, if he remarried. And my daughter said, mom, we are not worried about who dad will remarry. He has good taste. We're worried about you. I'll never forget that. <laughs> Do you remember that? I had good taste, obviously, right? <laughs> no, no, it was just so funny. It was so funny. So sex addiction just wasn't being discussed. So I kept it pretty under the lid. A lot of people didn't even know we divorced until they would find out. I didn't go around telling people we divorced. And yet he went through public church discipline. Yeah, big, huge Bible church, the only one in our town. And he went through it, like publicly removed from the church, from the pulpit with elders <clears throat> and talking to the, the congregation. It was a Bob, were you standing up there in front of the church when this happened? <clears throat> no. They wouldn't let no, no, I was, they, yeah, I wasn't allowed to attend. Yeah, it was, it, it was, it was tough. And, and, you know, and I fought it tooth and nail. I mean, I really hadn't even bought into the idea that I was a sex addict. Yeah. Because there was really no real good definition, even at that time yet, or at least the people that we knew and, and talked to, you know, they didn't have a real good definition for me. That was like 2000. Yeah. We'd argue and he'd say, um, I am not a sex addict. <laughs> And I'd say, but I, I thought we decided you were. We've been asked to be on Oprah by one of the guys, the counselors we've been to. And we turned them down because we didn't think that was a very good idea at the time. And then we'd argue like a month later and he'd say, I am a sex addict. You get used to it or leave. I was so confused. It was like, so I didn't have anything to read. I remember reading Lori Hall's book and thinking, there's something about this. There's something I'm getting something out of this and then getting, an, I think I did an online woman's group and it was confusing and too many people. So long story short, fast forward, we decide all the harm that was going on. It just, it was unbelievable. I remember a, I remember a basketball game that Joshua was playing in and Bob walked through the door. We're in about a year divorced. He walks through the door just to watch it and we're out of town and the whole, we're at a Christian school on top, same Christian school in the church building, right? So it's all, yeah, incestuous. <laughs> and he walks through the back door of the gym, and I didn't know if he was going to make it or not. We weren't talking much then. We talked now and then over the kids, but not much. 
And the whole bleacher, I remember everybody just looking at Bob, like, oh, there's Bob, you know, Mr. Executed from the, or, um, you know, uh, excommunicated from the church. Yeah. And I just froze. And he just looked lost. He was looking around like, who do I sit with? The whole church are the same Christian school people. And I just went down that pew. I remember going down the bleachers one by one. I could feel like, you know, eyes in the back of my back, like burning through me. And I went and got his hand and walked him up to where we were sitting. He was alone. I was still his sister in Christ. See, I was, I, I never called myself his ex-wife. I just didn't, I didn't believe I was. I didn't feel like that was God's will for us. And yet I did by the second year, I started saying my ex-husband and, you know, I can't wait to see who's, what's going to happen. But I can remember him coming up there and he was just broken. I could feel it. He was different, very humbled. So three years go by. And I don't think God told me to remarry him. I don't remember that. I don't remember even praying. It was more pressure of Bob has really changed. Even my pastor would say he's really changed. They put him back in the church, let him come back. <clears throat> and um, did you want to say anything? <laughs> what? Yeah, I got. I was let back into the church basically only because of Connie. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot that. Because there, uh, and I don't know where the the verse is, but where it talks about church church discipline, <clears throat> tells all about why and how you do that. Well, nobody had looked about three chapters later to talk about the purpose of it. The purpose of it being for restoration, and so Connie had to go and and kind of point that out. <laughs> to, to uh, to everybody, and then the Deva elders meeting took about three months for them to get it on the agenda. But they realized that the Bible did say that. Now, now I say that with a lot of humility. I had the the sweetest pastor who knew the Word of God backwards and forward. He was a national speaker, went all over. He was a big deal. But for some reason, there was a disconnect between those those. It says, "Return the brother back to the church, lest he be." like overwhelmed by Satan, basically. So yes, I remember that part that I did go to him and ask him that. He came back to the church. Then people started assuming we'd reconcile and I felt a lot of pressure. And he asked me to remarry him on New Year's Eve in front of my youngest son and his girlfriend. I'll never forget it. And I didn't know what to say. I was not ready to remarry. I could still see character issues that were very unchanged. I still didn't know why he wouldn't use a porn and do another thing. So he had done a lot more than porn. Okay, and, way outside the marriage. And, and let me say, I had truly gone through a repentance, you know, just like the prodigal son. And and I knew that in my heart. Mm -hmm. And spiritually, I was strong. Mm -hmm. And yet, I still, <laughs> I, still, I still didn't know why I did what I did. Or... Yeah. How not to do it again? I really didn't know that yet. Yeah. Uh, but anyway. And I say this with laughter today because we had a lot of healing. He did do great until we remarried. Wow. What do you think it was about remarrying? Is it the pressure cooker of marriage that it is for all of us? Conflict, yeah. finances, yeah. expectations. He came back into the marriage thinking, um, new beginning. We'll never talk about that again, right? Oh, gosh. And it does not work that way, does it? Does not work that way. And 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 no, and he, I should nor should it, nor should it <laughs> no. be that way. No. So we get remarried. Fast forward um about 
2008, I find that he's doing stuff again, bad stuff. In fact, we had a huge argument and he was willing to look at porn on our big screen TV in the home. That was a first. I don't know what to do. I'm so embarrassed. So I start making up this about me anyway. I mean, I kind of thought something's got to be, it's got to be me. I'm not a good enough wife. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not sweet enough. And I started really beating myself up. I call a pastoral counselor in our church who took care of all the marriage problems for our pastor. They had gotten to that point by 2003. And I said to this couple, I need help. Bob is looking at porn again. He's being very abusive emotionally abusive to me and mm-hmm. mad and anger and raging and driving off on his motorcycle. And they said, the guy, the man said, bring him over to our home tomorrow night and we're going to rip him a new one. And I said, that's not what I want for him. I want you to heal him. I want you to help us heal this, whatever it is. I want to have a marriage. So I willingly went there, separate cars on an, I think it was a late October night. You'd You'd gone off to the dear lease by yourself. We I didn't know where he was for four days. We were married. He left mad. So he willingly comes. I'll let you tell that. It's such a great story. <clears throat> so so we get there. And this was right after uh right after we this happened that I watched this video uh at home. And I mean, I was I was ashamed and all of that. Uh, having done that so we get there that night and what do I do uh I blame her for having ordered the uh the, the specific you know direct tv add-on services that you can get and so I blamed her for that and then all of a sudden the tables flipped you know and I became the victim she was the perpetrator yeah and so, so gaslighting yeah. Yes. Yeah. In the worst way. And it went south from there. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm, it went so south. I can't put into words. It went from me crying and saying, I love him. I want to, I want this to work to him crying saying if she hadn't, and, and I'll be honest, we later called the cable company and he had ordered it. <laughs> I had not ordered anything. I just happened to be there that day when they put it on. I just, I didn't have anything to do with anything. I just, sat there and watched him do our TV, but he, right. he had ordered it. And, um, and so, um, by the way, she didn't hold a gun to my head to, to watch that. <laughs> no, no, I did not. And so I didn't even know he could access porn on our TV. And so this is what happens. They basically look at me and they say, you are, let me think of how, let me think of how they said it. They said, here it is. May I read a, a little snippet from my book? Is that okay? Okay. So it was a cold, dark, stormy October night, and we drove separately to their home. Through sobs of tears, I shared how he had blatantly watched porn on our den TV, and they seemed empathetic until Bob blurted out that he did what he did because I was so critical of him. The atmosphere in their home shifted rather quickly. He became the victim. I became the perpetrator. After his long, tearful story, they turned toward me, revealing vengeance and snarled faces. With pointed fingers, they declared that I had a demonic spirit of criticism and literally threw me out of their home so they could minister to my husband. This is verbatim, okay? This is a journal entry that I made that night. I contemplated driving off an overpass as I attempted to drive through an out-of-control thunderstorm that was mirroring my own physical, spiritual, and emotional dysregulation. 
Their misguided counsel allowed him another four years of acting out with little interruption from me because I wasn't yet educated about addiction. And I believe just a little bit of what they said might be true. I'm so grateful we finally found good help in 2012. He now has nine years of sobriety with recovery, and he will now protect me from people just like that. We're careful about our tribe and who we confide in today. I healed from that horrific experience because I studied and learned what addiction was, and Bob made amends with me and grieved the assault against me. Um, I don't. I don't really know other than God how I didn't lose my life over that. It was probably one of the darkest nights outside of knowing he betrayed me. Does oh, that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's just awful. I know. And when, we've tried when to go you to get blamed, when you get blamed, I mean, it's one thing for the person with the addiction to blame their betrayed partner. But then when your spiritual leaders hop on that bandwagon, it's like innate, the enabling of evil. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, she talked earlier about some of the advice that she got, which was, you know, hey, you need to do this better. You know, you need to dress up prettier. You need to put more makeup on. You need to wear higher heels, et cetera, et cetera. All, all of that being directed towards her, which, of course, did what for me? Enabled you? Give me you? a license. To, to act more. She was the, she was what was causing me to act out. Gave me a license to do it. Yeah. That's yeah. the, that's the wrong message. Right. right. So that's a dark note. <laughs> and I don't <laughs> want to end on that. What I want to end on, there are three points Good. that I want our church to understand. I want our churches to just open up their hearts. Okay. And their minds Hire people or refer out and quit trying to solve this themselves. But point number one, sex addiction is not about sex. It's an attachment disorder. It began when they were little boys or little girls. And it, it has so much to do with how they weren't given a place, a safe place to, to attach, to find empathy, to be known and they began being exposed probably to sexuality, either by being sexually abused, finding explicit material in their home. And they that changed their brain. It became that thing that felt so good and so bad and soothed all that emotional pain they were feeling. And that's number one. And do you want to say anything more about that? Because that's a, that's your love right there. That's your love, you know, uh, teaching that you love to teach to men. What do you want to say about that? <clears throat> yeah, the whole, as she just said, addiction is, sex addiction is not about sex. As she said, it's an attachment disorder, really. And in order to, to heal from the addiction, <clears throat> excuse me, and this is, this is my experience. You know, this is my story. Uh, this may not fit everybody. But a lot of times it does. And that is, is that, you know, Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about uh, how we are spirit, soul, and body. And it takes work and healing in all three of those areas. Yeah. There are body components to that, brain, 
things, dopamine, and you know, we can go into all of that. Uh, there needs to that needs correction, if you will, or training, healing, understanding. Uh, I, for me, the biggest component, we've always been taught that in the soul is the mind, the will, and the emotions. And it's the emotions that were the real culprit for me. And they drove you. We always, you know, guys will talk about how emotional women are and how they express all their emotions. Well, I've come to the conclusion that men are just as emotional. We just don't know how to express the emotions because typically don't even understand what's going on. In healthy you know? ways. They don't know how to. Yeah. In a healthy way. That's right. Yeah. But we end up finding a way uh, to meet legitimate needs in an illegitimate way. Yeah. And that's true for men and women that are that struggle with this addiction, not just men. So number one is sex addiction is not about sex. And then number two, Connie. Your important point, number two. Yeah, sex addiction is not a marriage problem. And the wife is not the cause or the cure for his addiction. And she certainly can't control his behaviors. And when I have a client that's really struggling with that, I'll just say, so when did he start using porn? Age eight. Oh, okay. So you were in a relationship with him at age eight and you caused him to use that porn. And that that's when the light goes off. They're like, oh my God, I didn't, I didn't cause his porn use, because they make up that they're not enough, mm -hmm. you know, and I am teaching my clients this lately. It's kind of a smarty pants, but I'll, she'll say, I, I just don't think I'm enough for him. And I'm, I'll say, well, then, honey, if you're not enough for him, he's just not enough for you. I mean, that's the truth, you know, <laughs> and they just all laugh. Usually they don't quite get it. They have to think about it. Then number three, it's kind of like Bob said before, I'll let you take number three. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's the same point I made a minute ago. And is it uh, sex addiction can't be dealt with just on a spiritual level. There has to be healing, training, education in the other two areas, which would be in the soul and the body. Counselor that I had once told me, he says, Bob, you can't pray yourself out of something that you behaved your way into. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and pastors need to understand this. They need to understand. They, they instinctively, because they went to seminary, want to push the whole spiritual aspect of addiction. And there is a big component Absolutely. spiritually to Absolutely. this, but they're forgetting the other parts. And so what, well, and, and, and I was going to say, you know, without that spiritual component, we don't have a standard. There's no standard. Jesus sets the standard for us, right? Right. Yeah. 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 I think the thing that's so hurtful for me is hearing women. I just, I've got literally, we have a couple at five o'clock that we're going to work with. They go into their pastor's office and the pastor listens and he begins to judge and he begins to pathologize. He sees her very dysregulated, very escalated, crying and talking negative about her husband, critical. And so what happens is he gets her husband in there who's pretty calm, pretty cool, especially if he's just looked at porn. <laughs> he's got all his cookies and he's feeling great. And what he does is he won't listen to what she says about her husband. He believes him. And I, I think that's just the complexity of this issue with, with the church. 
who knows her husband better, the pastor or the wife? The wife does. She needs, what does she need when she comes into his office? Prayer, empathy, compassion, understanding, <laughs> and she needs to be believed. She's already being gaslit, blame shifted, crazy making at home. She doesn't need it in his office, okay? Right, and at that stage, uh, which is, you know, typically it's right after she finds out, after there's, <clears throat> you know, after the guy, she finds out and it's disclosed to what's going on. Her world has just been blown up. Her safety, her security, I, you know, I can't even imagine of all the things that go on, went on in Connie's mind, you know, what's this, what's the future going to look like, you know, or are we going to stay together? What's going to happen with the kids? And, you know, how am I going to make money if we get divorced and all those things? She's totally traumatized at that, at that moment, mm -hmm. which to some people comes across as she's crazy. Yeah. Right. We look so crazy. Right. And yeah. it looks dysregulated. And of course, the guy, when he comes in there, he's all cool and calm. He knows she's causing the problem to start with. And so he yeah. will play, yeah. play it up. Yeah. I used to think, how am I going to feed my kids? How am I, how am I going to go back to school and try to take care of these kids? And how am I going to, you know, how, how am I going to stay out of jail? I don't look good in orange. I, I don't want to go to jail, you know, and I would just fret at night about this stuff. So, so the bottom line is. What were you afraid of going to jail for? Because your behavior was so erratic because of your trauma? No, I thought I might end up killing him. I'm just saying. Well, there you go. That's yeah. You're true because of your trauma. You're that's why you were afraid you might kill him is because I, that I was rage offline. center of our brain gets lit up because of the threat. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah I really thought I could hurt someone myself. I was it, the dribbled disclosures, but that wasn't what it was. It was the spiritual abuse that was driving me insane. Okay, it, it the spiritual abuse is what was driving me to the edge of feeling like I I was either going to hurt him or hurt myself. I mean, I literally prayed all the time. Lord, take one of us home, preferably not me, but take one of us home. I prayed it a lot. It was that intense of of, of a painful situation. So, you know, just wrapping this up, I think though though pastors don't want to do this, pastoral counselors don't want to do this. Okay, let's be real. Women's ministry. I mean, oh my God, the comments I heard from women's ministry. You know, you're addicted to your husband. Well, of course you want to stay married. Look at that ring on your finger. Okay, well, maybe if, you know, you did this, you did that. Don't you date or have sex with that boy, you know, if he's acting out. You better be having sex with that boy. If, you know, it was just, that's the stuff that became so crazy making. And so the bottom line is this. The last thing a betrayed woman needs is more abuse. She's already got it from the betrayal and her husband. She's got to have a safe place to go. And I am begging pastors, counselors, even therapists that are outside the church that are secular, understand what they're doing, understand or don't do it. I, I have clients as a coach that come to me. We're, we're working with couples now. We do, I'm do, I do disclosures. He's going to, we do um, individual men, women. I'm at a point like today, I had a client that I knew she needed a therapist. She was highly traumatized, but it was from spiritual abuse. But it, I, it had gone past coaching her out of it, okay? Be humble, 
be humble and say, you know what, I love you and I'll pray for you and your husband. And I, I want to be, I want to be a part of your healing, but I can't do the work for you. Mm-hmm. I have couples that are made to call into the pastor every week and report and then they're criticized. Then the counseling people are criticized. We're, we're being criticized, you know, at times. That's abusive. It's like stay in your lane. You're the shepherd, you know. Mm-hmm. Make sure everybody's safe and pray <clears> for it. And I get how enmeshed that must feel, right? Because it's their flock and their, their church. They want their church to be whole. And they want, they want marriages to look right. But they're not doing it the way that is helping couples. Does that make sense? It does. Absolutely. And it is so scary. So for our listeners, if you're listening to this and you're getting advice and help that you think maybe is not actually trauma informed and taking into consideration the whole body, mind, spirit, um, body, soul, spirit, you know, all the, the complexity that is sexual betrayal and sex addiction might I encourage you to seek help from a professional? You can reach out to me and we have a referral list. You can certainly reach out to Bob and Connie and we will put a link to their information in our show notes here. Um, there is hope and there is healing to be had, but there's also a lot of damage being done by unknowing professionals and pastors Um but there is hope for healing and look at you guys now. And it is amazing how you're able to do this for other people and hopefully save some people from the re-traumatization that you had to go through over and over and over again. You guys have such a story of hope. Um, I'm so thankful for you taking the time out of your schedule to be with me on our podcast today. Bob, did you have one more thing to say? Yes. You know, we're starting to see that there are churches that are embracing all of this. Yeah. You know, because the, the truth of the matter is, is that for 10 guys that walk past you, six to seven of them are dabbling in something outside of the marriage, some kind of sexual activity outside the marriage. Yeah. And so it, it needs to be embraced by, by all the churches yeah. and realized. And, and unfortunately, I think that you know, sex addiction is one of those, it's one of those really top tier sins. You, you understand <laughs> what I'm saying? You know, it's to the church. It's, the, it's yeah. the icky one. And yet it's so present in our culture today that it really needs to be, really needs to be dealt with, educated, you know, bring professional people in if necessary. And that's why Kristen and Michael do what they do. And we're so grateful for your ministry. Yeah. It's changing lives. It really is. We're all flawed. You know, there, there are flaws in all of our ministries. And yet we're out there doing the hard stuff. And I pray God's honored by it. And, and what's the whole goal? Well, the whole goal is to restore marriages. Yep. Right? I mean. And set people free and heal the brokenhearted. Yeah. That's right. That's what we're called to do. So thank, thank you for having us, sweet woman. Yes. Oh, my Pleasure. gosh. Thank you guys so much. Um, And to all of our listeners, until the next episode, I'm holding out hope for you.